Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Uh, on this week's episode, I'm delighted to welcome eight authors out of uh, a wonderful new collection uh, entitled The Lebanon Uprising of 2019, Voices from the Revolution. It was edited by Rima Majid and Jeffrey Karam. Um, it has something in the ballpark of 30 contributors. Um, we have eight of them with us today. And um, I'm just delighted to be able to have a, a, an hour-long conversation about the Lebanon, Lebanese uprising of 2019 and what followed. Why don't I turn it over to start to uh, to the two editors? Uh, we'll hear first, I think, from Rima Majid, and then we'll talk to Jeffrey Karam about uh, how this project came together and, uh, you know, and uh, what we should know about it. Great. Thank you so much, Mark, for inviting us. Uh, it's really a pleasure uh, to be discussing this book with you and uh, and to have some of the contributors. We're, we're a very big group, and this is, as you said, a, a huge uh, collection of articles. So um, it's hard to get everyone, but we'll try to, to represent uh, what this book is about. So this book started really um, in early 2020 when the uh, when the pandemic started and when we found ourselves uh you know quickly moved out of the streets to uh, and confined to our homes and um there was a, a a feeling amongst many of us that we wanted to wrap our heads around the huge events that that were happening uh and events that are i, I must say i i don't like the word exceptional especially when talking about lebanon but i think there was something exceptional about that moment and that is the, um, the temporality of the shift from the heydays of an uprising to uh, a very uh, fast and stark uh, uh, crisis that took many uh, faces. I mean, starting with, of course, an economic collapse that, that was deepened through uh, the, the pandemic and then, uh, unfortunately, the August 4 uh, uh, port explosion. So it started as a conversation uh, between me and Jeff uh, about you know the, uh, uh, curating something, and we wanted it to be a collective effort rather than just us uh, writing from an academic position. Uh, and we tried as much as possible to bring uh, different voices in this book. Of course, we don't claim that we're representing every voice uh, that was in the uprising, but at least so we were. Uh, we tried to include different topics to think about the uprising from different perspectives: the social, the political, the economic, the environmental. You know, uh, as you see throughout the book. Um, and uh, and we were also careful in terms of, and as you see, the book is intentionally called the Lebanon uprising rather than the Lebanese uprising. And that was uh, because we wanted to, to signal that there's an important role for non-Lebanese or for uh, residents. Uh, uh, and that's why we have chapters on uh, uh, refugees, but also comparative experiences uh, from Tunisia, from Iraq, from uh, Syria, from people who have lived through two uh, revolutions. So the first wave, so we have two chapters by uh, people who have lived in Tunisia and Syria during uh, 2011 and then happened to be in Lebanon uh, when the uprising happened. So we wanted to to um, to include these different perspectives. Um, it was, I think, a, a very uh, enjoyable process, at least uh, I think for me and Jeff, uh, to read these different perspectives, as you see, it's not a, it's not a typical academic uh, book. Uh, so uh, th there's a framing that has some, of course, theory, and there's a, a certain approach that we are adopting, and that approach is uh, pushing against the literature on failure necessarily, uh, and that is to think about uprisings as both events that are to be studied as events, 
but also longer processes, uh, historical processes, where you know that we we should allow for ebbs and flows or failures and successes before uh, you know making a final judgment. And uh, having in mind, for example, if we think about the great revolutions that we study in in the literature, you know, the French Revolution. 10 years into it, it would have been declared a, a, a huge failure, right? Today we celebrate it as a success. So we're thinking about allowing for this broader historical process, but also, uh, you know, looking at it, uh, at, the, at the social question and the political question and how of change and how they link together. And I, I like the way that you frame it as a revolutionary process, a revolutionary moment, because you're right, we don't really know what the outcomes of any of these revolutions are, whether 2011 or 2019. Exactly, and and there's an I mean, we live in a world where uh, we want quick outcomes, uh, and you know, under uh, neoliberalism. And I think what we're trying to do with this book is is taking a step back and and allowing for uh, a sober analysis that that gives time uh, for. Uh, uh, events as huge as revolutions, these are very deep social transformations to take place. And therefore, uh, uh, you know, moving away, we, we just think that it's more useful not to think about evaluating success mm -hmm. and failure, but rather trying to understand the processes uh, and the dynamics of these uh, revolutions and how they unfold. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, and always thinking about how revolution and counter-revolution are in, a, in this dialectic uh, uh, relation, how regimes will, will always have a way to uh, to push uh, back. Uh, and, and therefore, the outcomes are still to be seen, I think, everywhere mm -hmm. in the region. So, Narima, you are both an editor of the volume and you also have your own chapter. Hold tight. I'm going to come back to you to talk about your own chapter, but let's go to Jeffrey Karam, the other co-editor of the volume, and um, maybe you can say a few words about uh, the volume and then also your own, actually, two chapters. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark, for inviting us. So I'm not, I don't have a lot to add to what Rio mentioned, but I just want to say two important things. The first one is really this moment of an early appreciation of doing this volume during such surreal times. This is something that we really had much difficulty in how we were researching and writing and how we were creating this. So our first initial list of inviting authors was really beyond the 30 names that you see in the actual book. Uh, it was very complicated to be able to say that we want to claim our own narratives and be able to write about our own moment. This was such an important motive for us to be able to say, maybe this is an exceptional moment in Lebanon's history where we are able to write what we experience and in such a quick manner and still avoid the loopholes of whether it's too early or it's too late in the game to be able to analyze what's unfolding in front of our eyes. So this was a big concern for most of the first period that we were creating and writing and editing. And as you can imagine, as Rima mentioned already, from a pandemic to the complete currency devaluation to the August 4 explosion, this book was the product of all these events that were happening on simultaneous level. So as you can imagine, this is a burden that's very hard to be able to relate beyond our own close milieu. So that's something that I'm not going to say we should have a path on our shoulder, but it was also immensely moving for us and maybe therapeutic to a certain extent to be able to write and reflect on that moment. But one thing that I wanted to note also, as Rima mentioned, which is the the diverse audience that actually was invited to write. And this was also something that we not only on purpose wanted to do, but it was sort of an uphill battle if you want to be able to curate such a long volume with all printing costs that are going on right now, but also to be able to have 
diverse audiences. So as you can see from chapter from part one and part two, I would say it's strictly academic, but part three is the most interesting one. Well, part three really has to do with disseminates and reflections on the ground. These are shorter pieces, but they have to do more with the bottoms-up approach that we wanted to advocate from the very beginning of this project. And this is something that I think is one of the strongest values or merits of the book, is that much of the editing process that Dream and I went through was not anything about changing structure or making sure it's more academic as much as it was a way praising our colleagues, our friends, our peers on what they're writing and how they're doing things in these surreal times. So beyond complicating the binary of success and failure, beyond uh, talking about very new primary documents, stuff that we circulated, stuff that we wrote, uh, many editorial pieces that were covered, some of them were covered. Uh, I wrote several pieces for The Monkey Cage, which are also covered in the book. Uh, this book serves as an anthology, or if you want, as the beginning of this larger treatment. So I think this is very, very, very important for us to be able to reflect. Mm -hmm. And I think one, one another point that Rima just reminded me right now to mention is that some of the chapters are also written in Arabic, sent us in Arabic, and we then translated them. So this is also part of a, an accurate reflection of uh, not only providing this space, but also uh, trying to figure out that at the end of the day, yes, we did produce a text that's gonna, that was published mainly in English with the UK American press, but the longer goal that we have is really translating this book into Arabic so it can reach a wider audience and be able to really speak to what motivated this project in the first place really producing a volume from people that were on the streets and not only people that were Lebanese. And this is something that we really, really wanted to not only like uh, emboss throughout the process, but also be able to highlight extensively that this volume would have not been possible without these manifold and different contributions from lawyers, students, members of political parties, academics, it was really uh, a very, if you want, I would say right now, we could say it looks very neat. When you look at the table of contents, you look at the bios of contributors, it looks very neat when it's in published format. But just imagine the process at the very beginning. Uh, the map was very complicated to be able to create how can we find one voice that we can frame under this bigger uh, narrative of this is not a success, this is not a failure, but this is an unfolding process. And how can we understand that unfolding process? And... This creates a lot of tension in how we complicate whether this is a revolutionary uprising, whether it's an actual intifada, whether it's a moment in time that was, will ever never happen again, whether it's just just cycle right now. So many of these questions are questions that we also don't have answers to, even when the book is done. These are issues that we're still researching, still thinking about, and still contemplating amongst each other. And the most interesting part that we also highlight in the introduction, which is the book is the product of several conversations between Rima and I, between members of uh, different contributors, uh, between different uh, settings that we had in the street. So what you see in this volume looks very neat and very creative. It's coming from a very, very, very messy uh, place, which is what we think of when we consider any revolutionary uprising, the messiness, the confusion. And I hope this is also echoed in how the chapters are tackling different issues and how these different issues are not ones that are only talking about how this moment was exceptional or glorious, but how complicated it truly was. And anyone who looks at the volume, looks at the table of contents, they'll immediately see the diversity of the contributors, uh, disciplinary in terms of disciplinary terms, in terms of uh, their approaches, in terms of their backgrounds. 
And that's, uh, I think, a really important contribution there. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say the third uh, section is the most interesting. It's all interesting. Um, but it really is something that you wouldn't necessarily see in a traditional academic volume. And I think that's a real, um, it's almost a primary source for uh, for many people who are trying to understand what happened in uh, in the uprising. Why don't we turn to um, some of the contributors to the volume? We'll come back to you, you two, Rima and Jeffrey, kind of towards the end, and you can talk about your own chapters. But why don't we start hearing from some of the contributors? And I, I think the first one um, is uh, Sana Tenori, a historian, um, author of one of the first chapters in the volume. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your contribution? Yes, thank you, Mark. Um, actually, I was tasked with something that for a long time I thought was impossible, you know. The idea was that I was to give the historical context of um, uh, how do we get to the revolution, but also how do we get to the crisis um, that is simultaneously happening with uh, the revolution, so the economic and political crisis. Um, and so in you know very few words, I had to write um, a history of 100 years um you know a, a social economic uh, political intellectual history um so what i decided to do is to uh, to use uh, something that was actually very prevalent during um the revolution which is the use of space and so uh for me there was a moment in when we were in the streets which is when um we started um entering different spaces public but also as i mentioned in the chapter some private spaces that we wish to claim uh, for ourselves and one of those very special moments was when i um entered the grand theater that is in uh, downtown beirut right off martyr square and uh, this is a this is a theater that was built during the mandate so in the 1920s it was built for uh, it was built by foreign investment and it was built as i argue in the chapter um, for and by uh, uh, developing um, uh, bourgeoisie in Lebanon, or what I call the, the oligarchy um, that ruled Lebanon at the time, that was um, being supported and supportive of the French mandate, which creates Lebanon in 1920. And so the, I follow in the chapter the different stages um, of the Grand Theatre, when it opens and why, and the money that allows um, for it to open, but, but also the... Um, the different stages it goes through, how it transforms into a um, into a cinema, what happens to it during the civil war, um, and then what happens post war, which is when it shuts down and the um, reconstruction of uh, downtown Beirut um, begins in the Hariri neoliberal period, um, and that what what that means to um, to the theater, and so what I'm actually saying um, in the chapter is that a lot of the basis for um, the economic crisis, which is a, a crisis um, that ultimately uh, has origins in the mandate period and in the very creation of the state of Lebanon and the, the early years of uh, both pre-independence and post-independence directly. So we're talking 20s, 30s, 40s, um, and early 50s, um, that this is a period in which the economy of Lebanon um, and its politics, of course, are built around uh, particular sectors and some unequal development of some sectors, particularly the services sectors um, of banking and tourism at the expense of industry, agriculture, and other sectors. Um, but it's also a period of unequal development between Beirut and the other cities and the other um, general just rural areas as well. So it's a story of unequal development. It's also a story of, um, of inequality along gender lines, 
um, along racial lines, which happens between Lebanese and non-Lebanese, as we see happening um, throughout uh, the history of uh, the 20th century in Lebanon and the 21st century. And so by mapping these inequalities, um, um, the chapter kind of gives a basis for um, for the for the crisis, but also the um, um, the, the eruption of um, of contestation over this crisis. Because also what the chapter does is to map alongside this unequal development, alongside the origins of this um, economic system uh, um, that that develops in Lebanon throughout the 20th century, is a history of contestation against the state that also existed. And so I end the chapter by. Um, by basically saying that the revolution itself, by entering a space like the Grand Theater, which is a private space, first needs to reckon with private ownership and this whole structure of the economy that um, that the Lebanese state, um, you know, was built upon. But it also needs to reckon with a past in which one there is a history of long history of contestation against the state but also a past in which um, there is very much unequal development that we need to be able to talk about and be able to, um, um, you know, to, to describe and so that we can actually uh, move beyond and against. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting and it's really important to historicize um, where this came from. I want to go back to Rima Majid uh, uh, for a moment to talk about her own chapter in the volume um, to really get a sense of this, so what you call uh, sectarian neoliberalism and kind of the economic context of the uprising. Yes, so what I did in this chapter is I tried to, so what was really uh, striking from the very first day of the uprising and then got me thinking about it, the, even the first wave is that from 2011, people have always been saying bread and freedom and social justice. In Lebanon, it was people were denouncing equally both the sectarian system, but also uh, the economic system, whether they would call it neoliberal or not. Uh, uh, but people were talking about economic uh, concerns. And probably the Lebanese uprising is peculiar in the sense that it's probably the only one that started in the context of a financial collapse. Um, so... Uh, so in this chapter, I, I try to think about this uh, concept that I'm developing, where I'm looking at how these uh, how these two structures of uh, uh, the sectarian state and the neoliberal uh, state, and, and I'm making the argument in the case of Lebanon that Lebanon has been neoliberal from, from the very inception. Uh, it's unlike the rest of the region, it's probably the only country that never really had a big uh, welfare state uh, or an, an authoritarian uh, regime uh, compared to the region. So, uh, but uh, uh, comparing it with Iraq, because I, in my own work, I see, um, again, a very interesting uh, similarity in, in terms of movements, uh, uh, you know, in both Lebanon and Iraq, it's been happening almost simultaneously in both countries. So 2011, 2013, 2015, 18 and then uh, 19. Um, and I'm, I, so I, uh, in this chapter, I, I try to develop this concept of sectarian neoliberalism, uh, you know, and I build on, uh, you know, the concept of um, 
Fabio Armeo of, of like the mafia owned democracies uh, or this type of democracies where uh, the, 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 there's a, a very clear marriage between the business world and, uh, and, and politicians and what it means in terms of uh, how, how then it shapes uh, the way we, uh, you know, contentious politics uh, happens from below. So, so, um, so I developed this concept and then I, I tried to think about, so how does it shape the political imaginaries and, and subjectivities and how it actually shaped many of the uh, uh, debates or framings that we saw in the uprising. So for example, protesters waving the, the national flag, whether in Iraq or Lebanon, as a signal for an and for you know an anti-sectarian uh, sentiment, uh, but then questioning whether sect whether sectarianism and nationalism are really opposites, and you know I argue that they aren't actually. Uh, but or for example, uh, the very big presence of an anti-corruption uh, discourse in these uprisings, rather than actually tackling the structures of the economy and, and neoliberalism. Um, I mean, the same thing we see with the whole discourse about the technocratic politics and technocratic governments, again, that we, we've seen in both countries, uh, both Iraq and Lebanon, uh, and the idea of a leaderless uh, movement uh, that I, I think is also very much shaped by this, uh, you know, the structure of uh, sectarian neoliberalism. And, you know, I, I wrap up this discussion with thinking about, you know, again, at the, at the level of framing, um, you know, whether we're talking about my revolution or our revolution and, you know, the search for a missing collective uh, political project uh, that and and many that start. I mean, of course, there was an initial moment that was very collective, but then when political organization started, it became shaped very much uh, around the individual. And maybe this is uh, uh, this is uh, one area to think more about. And how do we push forward the revolutionary potential of these uh, uprisings? Again, I'm, I I argue this in, in this chapter. Uh, it's beyond individual blame. So I'm not making an argument that these are not good revolutionaries or that people are not, uh, you know, uh, revolutionary enough. But I'm I'm thinking about how structures also shape how political subjectivity and political uh, imagination uh, unfolds in times of, uh, you know, exceptional times of revolution. Great. So one of the things which is really striking about the Lebanese uprising of 2019 and the um, and this really comes through really clearly in the book is both the geographic scope of it and also kind of the social and class uh, scope of it in terms of the, the who's participating, the issues that are raised. Um, and everything else. Uh, why don't we um, turn to some of the other other authors now, and we'll start with um, with uh, uh, Grace Choam, a, a doctoral researcher in uh, development disability studies. Um, tell us a little bit about your chapter. Yes, thank you, Mark. Well, actually, th th that is it. Uh, so through my chapter, I tried to look at the intersectionality between civil rights and disability rights. And my hypothesis is that the civil rights movement, if there is such movement in Lebanon, can learn a lot from the disability rights movement. And so I tried to look at how this move, the disability rights movement, navigated 
pushing um you know the the rights of people with disability in Lebanon before during and after the Lebanon uprising and just the first as a disclaimer so this was part of my doctoral research where I interviewed um, seven disability activists and self-advocates but also in terms of positionality I it was activist ethnography so I do consider myself as part of the disability rights um, movement as an activist academic. Uh, although uh, I am part of a, st I am a steering committee member of something called the Disability Hub, and I'm also a mother of a child with a disability. And so uh, I, although I am kind of relatively the new kid on the block, I do consider myself as part of that movement as well. And so that also influenced how I looked at the data and how, how I analyzed the data. And why I say that um, we can learn a lot from the disability rights movement in Lebanon. I think it is the underdog, uh, and I do describe it as being a resilient movement across all of the different crises in Lebanon. And even if, uh, let's say, this non-sectarian movement is, wouldn't say relatively new, but it was quite timid after the civil war, um, the disability rights movement was actually born out of this non-sectarian um you know in reaction to 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 the sectarian political militias that that you know were very much prominent uh, during the war and the first protest that was part of this movement uh that you know that that was part you know parallel to the birth of this movement was an anti-war protest so it was not a protest to you know to protest and to promote for the rights of people with disabilities was actually against the war. And, um, you know, and you had a massive amount of people with disabilities just protesting in 1987. So that was right before um, the end of the civil war. And they were quite a vivid reminder of why war was actually not a good thing. And so they dissociated themselves from the militia who were establishing their own care institutions for people who got injured or disabled from the war. And they said, these organizations do not represent us and we are a movement in itself. And that's where uh, the, the birth of the movement actually started with, and they said, um, they, they said, we are no longer people to be taken care of. We are a force to be reckoned with. And uh, this is kind of what I, the, the, you know, what I try to explore throughout this chapter is this, um, you know, people with disabilities as a collective political group. And so, um, you know, fast forward a bit of theory, a bit of history, <laughs> and how their actual, what I described as eruptions, disruptions, and, you know, this um, massive activism, which led to the only law in Lebanon into the, the year 2000 related to the rights of people with disabilities. And that was quite a big success in terms of the disability rights movement. But uh, obviously, just like many laws in Lebanon, <laughs> it was not properly implemented. And uh, up until this day, we are governed by a disabled state, which discriminates against people with disabilities, either actively or passively, just by being inactive in terms of implementing and protecting the rights of people with disabilities. So fast forward a bit further, and then so what happened during the, the Lebanon uprising? Um, so I present this and from the interviews with the, the activists, it was both opportunities and lost opportunities. <laughs> so the opportunities were actually, and this is what we have observed, um, you know, it was a chance to first raise awareness 
on the rights of people with disabilities within civil society organizations that were partaking in, in the protest and in the Lebanon uprising. And then it also helped to build wider networks and build, you know, um, create potential allies to the cause of people with disabilities and also build prospective alliances, which, which we still see until today. But there was a lot of shortcomings linked to this um, uprising. And one of them was basically the lack of being able to operationalize cross-movement solidarity. And so, yes, there were networks that were built, but that remained quite superficial and not sustainable. And even one of them, one of the people I interviewed, he said, you know, they were calling us to come and join the protest, and we did. But when we when we got to you know Martyr Square, all of the out of all of the public toilets that were you know haphazardly just built for the protesters, none of them was an accessible toilet, and so he just felt that you know civil society was just using you know the right of this cause as a tokenistic manipulation to just voice further civil rights uh, without really modeling what inclusion should look like. And so that was one of the shortcomings. A lot of other shortcomings linked to leadership, representation within the movement, outside of the movement, and um, also um, you know, failure to achieve unity of demands, which I think was across the board, <laughs> across the whole uprising, but even within the dis disability uh, rights movement in itself. And also a lot of clashing identities and clashing demands between uh, um, the organizations of people with disabilities, uh, the militia, or I would say the sectarian political care institutions who also are service providers with pe for people with disabilities, and other charitable organizations who kind of go against the idea of inclusion and promote institutionalization. And they were all part of this protest, coincidentally and ironically. So clashing identities, clashing demands. And, um, you know, just to conclude, basically, <laughs> um, I, I kind of look at what are the factors that are necessary to achieve policy change. And out of all of the factors that were there, again, it was the failure to have sustainable cross movement solidarity, and also a failure to have a unity of demands, which was not able to further push the disability rights agenda among the wider civil rights agenda. And, you know, this is where I kind of, you know, ended the, the chapter about um, a reflection on disability politics, and we need to replace disability as a political issue. And it, it should be ingrained within the wider social justice cause and not a separate cause. And that's really where we will be really able to achieve a nation for all. Great, thanks. Why don't we now go to uh, Sarah Murad. Uh, she's uh, in the Department of Media Studies at the American University of Beirut and uh, the co-director of the Women and Gender Studies program. Uh, Sarah, tell us about your work. Thanks, Mark, for uh, hosting us. So um, I'm not going to go into details about the, the chapter. The chapter is titled Appearing as Women. But um, I wanted to really uh, unpack this notion of appearance, both because um, there was a like a visual fascination with images of women and with women's bodies in public spaces and, and women's participation in the protest um, that you could see in the media that we could feel when we were observing what was happening that people were commenting on. 
Um, and so I wanted to start from that place to think about uh, what, what it's meant for women to appear. Um, and I used, um, um, you know, Hannah Arendt's conceptualization of the public or the public sphere as a space of appearance, as a space where um, individuals' words, uh, you know, individuals perform their words and deeds to be witnessed by others. And I wanted to say how the uprising is both a space of appearance with, you know, with specificities to it, uh, but also a particular moment of appearance because really all, you know, the social attention is really all uh, um, um, channeled for on, on, on that event. Everyone is focused on that. Um, it's a media event. It's a spectacle, whether we like it or not. Um, so I was interested to see how women perform their political agency and performed here or, you know, thinking of performative politics, not in the pejorative or negative sense, but actually to see what kinds of words and deeds we did observe. Um, so that's in terms of appearance. In terms of women, I also wanted to know that there was something different that happened this time around, which is not that women were participating, you know, for the first time in protests. This is like, obviously, uh, women have been participating in uprisings for a long time now. Um, what was different is that they appeared as collectives, as groups, as coalitions. And I think this is what marked a difference, particularly if we compared it to maybe the last big uh, popular uprising of this kind, which happened in 2005 in Lebanon, we didn't see the same thing. So I wanted to think or to say that one of the things that we noted was gender did become a sort of coalitional category beyond the usual um, feminist circles, uh, uh, scenes of you know activism and organizing. Um, and we saw different kinds of collective action. So we had you know feminist activists, collectives groups who have been active for years now, um, um, particularly in organizing street demonstrations and protests, they led chants, they led, um, you know, they, they created new chants that really um, um, were diffused across the country. Um, and so, so we had the sort of veteran feminist activists, but we also had women at the beginning of the uprising organizing, um, you know, civil um, and not a, a vigil uh, uh, marches to protest against the violence that was used against the protesters. We also saw mothers in, in Shiyah and Ahnerimene neighborhood, uh, which is like a sectarian fault line, organize also peace marches in the wake of like uh, clashes in that neighborhood. Um, and these didn't necessarily operate under the sign of, of feminism or of feminist politics. But we did see these instances, you know, where women did identify gender as, the, as a coalitional category um, and we saw how also neighborhood was a, you know, coalitional category, class, uh, a profession and occupation. So how people gathered uh, uh, um, in the uprising gender is just one um, category among others. Um, and so I thought this was something, you know, to, to think of this coalitional uh, potential of gender. Um, but the other thing that I also noted was that because of their participation in large numbers, because of the, the sheer amount of documentation that we have, uh, what counts as political and who counts as a political subject uh, was also challenged during the uprising, not just in the issues that women carried, but in their, you know, them being featured in the media as much as they did. Uh, and I'm here, I'm like thinking from personal experience, it was very interesting to see how the media, the international media, was constantly looking for women to feature. Uh, I know Rima can also attest to that. I mean, we've been constantly asked, and then they would, you know, we would be talking to BBC, for example, and they would tell us, yeah, but I want a woman. You would suggest the name of a woman, but they wanted a woman. So here, you know, there's something 
from below, yes, women were there, but then there's something happening um, in terms of the media framing um, um, and this interest in featuring female voices, which is a reflection of like shifting discourses more broadly beyond the uprising. Uh, um, and then um, finally, um, I wanted to say is that, um, again, speaking from personal experience, there was a sense of collective effervescence of women coming together, of women owning the streets, uh, of marching in the streets, but then um, March, you know, there was, as with every year, um, there were plans to organize a, a demonstration or a march for the international, to, to, to commemorate International Women's Day on March 8th. And this was towards the end, really, of the mobilization, right when, right before Corona hit. And I remember participating in the meetings, uh, along with other feminist groups uh, from, from, you know, from different regions, uh, from NGOs, uh, uh, feminists of different ideological stripes. Um, and one of the things that's really noteworthy is that it was a moment where women came together but it was also a moment where we witnessed the limits of what we, you know, the, of that coalitional moment, because actually all of these groups could not, in that moment, um, agree on a common uh, slogan, even for that march. Uh, and so there is something particular about these revolutionary moments where differences are set aside, where you can see the potential of people coming together. But then when the sort of um, effervescence subsides a little bit, and and you know we come down to organizing and thinking together. Um, some schisms reappear, and uh, um, and then you know we hit the limit of you know is it just women coming together to have a shared politics or a shared vision or or what? Um, so yeah, this is just like a, hickey, mm -hmm. a brief summary. Yes. No, it's re it's really really interesting. Um, why don't we turn now to uh, Mona Makawi, a PhD candidate at NYU, and it's really interesting to bring in the role of refugees and non citizens into the uprising. Tell us about your this this chapter and your contribution. Hi, can you all hear me? Yes. Thank you for having me. Um, really, just so excited to to finally get to speak about the, the chapter, my contribution. Um, I think, you know, to keep it short, uh, when the uprising began, you know, I noticed like many others that there was a lot of the, a lot of rhetoric, uh, a lot of the demands, a lot of the outrage expressed by, by Lebanese protesters uh, was echoing, um, you know, a lot of what had come up in the camp revolts uh, about three to four months earlier. The camp revolts were like a popular uprising across um, all the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon in the summer of 2019, um, largely organi organized around the right to work after uh, the then Minister of Labor ruled or like implemented a notice to crack down on, on foreign workers, essentially. So, um, but then, you know, after reading analyses and op-eds and, and, you know, articles that emerged in the wake of the first wave of the uprisings, you know, I noticed there was like a glaring absence of migrants and refugees, uh, you know, despite the fact that they were they were obviously involved, you know, like if you were in the streets, you knew this. Um, but if you were on Twitter or social media, you also knew this. Um, but even, you know, by default, I think you could probably assume their involvement because by 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 many estimates, you know, uh, about a third of the, the population in Lebanon is is non-Lebanese. So. You know, there were clearly spaces in this narrative about the uprising that need to be colored in with with like the wide ranging actions and experiences that 
that non-Lebanese had concerning the uprising. So, you know, for instance, leading up to, to the uprising, politicians kind of tried to shift focus away from the government's inability to tackle, you know, the economic crisis uh, by deporting Syrian migrants and refugees, and then later, you know, cracking down on non-Lebanese workers, which ultimately sparked the camp revolts. Um, so this is just one of the, the example, one example of the, the kind of material connections between the movements that preceded the uprisings that, you know, it's context that we might miss if we don't expand our, our temporal and analytical scale. So there's always like a question of how far you go back, but there were there were other clear connections uh, in terms of tactics as others, you know, address in their in their chapters, specifically in reclaiming public space and, and, and kind of urban uh, tactics generally. Um, and then like, you know, as others have pointed out, uh, rallying cries centered around cross-class or cross-community mobilization and, and coalition building. So, um, you know, part of what the chapter tries to address is the fact that, you know, refugees and migrants and, and domestic migrant workers, whether from Palestine or Africa or Southeast, Southeast Asia, you know, they've long been most affected by the the issues that the uprising spoke to, you know, whether it's neoliberalism or corruption or government negligence or clientelistic sectarian channels, what what have you. Um, so, and obviously that's more, more apparent today, you know, as Lebanon continues to reel from financial or epidemiological or whatever crisis that we're currently going through. Um, so, Another part of the chapter's goal, I think, is, is to argue for writing in non-Lebanese non communities into Lebanese social history or contemporary dynamics or scholarship um, because these communities have, have faced these issues for so long um, on the one hand, and also because building on that, you know, there's a lot to learn from, from those communities. So that's kind of what the first part of the chapter addresses, you know, uh, these kind of longstanding histories or examples of during the uprising, you know, mutual aid networks or communal ways of being in support or protests for labor rights and civil rights, uh, you know, and, and trying to push for the idea that like when they win, you know, we win, um, which in the second part of the chapter I kind of address was, was lacking um, in protest rhetoric and, and demands. Um, so all this, you know, makes the turnout or non-turnout by non-Lebanese communities, you know, interesting. And also, you know, Lebanese response is really interesting and telling whether they're positive or negative. Um, so in the second half of the chapter, you know, I kind of get into that and address the pitfalls uh, by incorporating refugees and migrants into the narrative. So like specifically foc focusing on, on the nationalistic rhetoric that, you know, you, was was extremely unifying and, and brought communities together and, you know, is particularly beautiful considering Lebanese history um, and contemporary sociopolitical dynamics. Um, but, you know, the issue is also that, which I try to get into, that this focus on nationalism kind of reproduces and evokes and fails to, you know, comprehensively address issues that migrants are, are already hyper aware of or refugees are already hyper aware of. Um, so that's the downside of these beautiful moments of collectivity, you know, so 
I suggest that, you know, if it goes unchecked, it could continue to undermine future political progressive movements in Lebanon. Um, and so one kind of under, one kind of theme undergirding the chapter as well that I hope came through is, is to kind of more generally argue for incorporating non-Lebanese experiences um or opinions outside this the 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 trope of like uh resistance or samud you know steadfastness or uh victimization or suffering um or even uh writing or analyses that are camp centric um so kind of trying to to point out that there's a whole spectrum of lived experience outside of those things that is not just positive and not just negative. Um, and so like actively trying to reflect the contemporary reality of, of refugeehood or migration um, as it kind of unfolds in Lebanon. Um, and then, yeah, I think that the last point that I tried to get across as, as others have already mentioned, I think Rima mentioned it uh, right away is that uh, revolutions or uprisings, you know, or political movements, they're not isolated moments in time, you know, they're processes. So making that connection between the camp revolts and the uprising, for me, uh, like what I'm trying to argue, you know, is it's a necessary shift we need to make in our collective perspective or imaginary um, if we want the best chance possible to combat, you know, government corruption or neoliberal projects or neocolonial afterlives as they kind of manifest in Lebanon, um, you know, because imperial powers learn from each other, you know, they develop their kind of insidious mm -hmm. machinations from one another, you know, so that's something that we also need to, to learn from is, is how we can tap into what other communities are doing and, and learn from each other. So, um, yeah, I think, I think I'll stop there. <laughs> That's great. And we'll, we're going to come back to that theme in a moment uh, when we talk to Jeffrey. But before we get there, uh, let's go to uh, Roland Briashi uh, from the American University of Beirut and adding in another layer uh, beyond the economic drivers, sectarian drivers, beyond the specific classes and gender and social uh, uh, coalitions. The, this focus on the environmental drivers of, of, the, uh, of the uprising. Uh, Roland? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you for the invitation. Um, actually, uh, well, um, yeah, the chapter seeks to to um, uh, understand this, those links between, um, well, actually, what happened as a social mobilization and the history of uh, ecological disasters in Lebanon. So um, the chapter starts with a reminder of um, uh, toxic cargoes that came into Lebanon during the war. We knew uh, some... Uh, uh, mafia, Napolitan, Napolitan, Napolitan na mafia uh, smuggling with the Lebanese forces um, uh, toxic waste that uh, were actually distributed uh, um, in uh, Lebanese highlands. So, um, uh, Sana, you had something to say or? Uh, no? Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, so, um, so and this link between actually uh, with the ammonium nitrate that uh, uh, entered the country uh, and exploded on August 4th uh, in 2020. So um, the, the, the idea behind the chapter is that dispossession, appropriation, privatization, 
commodification of natural resources and public services have been are not new actually in Lebanon. Uh, they are rooted in the long durée uh, of global history of colonial state and neoliberal capitalism and the rule of confessionalism, whether it's made of feudal, mercantile, militia, or military confessional zuhama. So the, the, it's actually a very proper uh, terrain of study, let's say, Lebanon, uh, because it was built, as Sana was talking, in 1920, after a uh, massive famine in Lebanon between 1915 and 1918 that actually killed almost two, uh, one third of the population. And then back uh, after World War II and what happened um, um, uh, with the US containment policies and all those large scale infrastructure that came into and poured into the country in a modernization uh, perspective. So this mandate and uh, uh, modernization policy uh, geared by the US after during the Cold War uh, in Lebanon were actually what proliferated later and became uh, the reconstruction plans in Lebanon after 1990s. So there's a long history, as I was saying, between those massive large-scale infrastructures, this exhaustion of nature those and those projects and uh, with, what, with what we're witnessing today. So um, something like, a, um, let's say, um, an important maybe uh, is that something to point on is that disasters are not single ev events occurring in an ahistorical and apolitical vacuum. They unfold structural, social, unequal vulnerabilities. Whether it's it was during the trash crisis in 2015, where, as you were saying, Mark, uh, there's a local context also for the mobilization. We remember well. Uh, the government trying to uh, send to Akkar and then trying to send garbage to uh, Bekaa and create a new uh, um, uh, dump fields and they were refused and so this escalated and became later the Ustink movement and uh, garbage piled on, on streets uh, and we know what happened and the idea behind was to privatize actually the sector after uh, a very a fiasco of privatization with Suklin and they kept on getting back to the table that we want to privatize. So the, the, actually the, the chapter was divided into three uh, sections. Um, so uh, the first one was land and garbage capitalism. Uh, the second was water and sewage, a century old bonanza. And the third one was actually cartel exhaust and air pollution. I won't stop a lot on each one of them, but on the first one, when we talk about land, we can, we can think about well, the garbage crisis that came and now uh, and the relation between um, land reclamation in Lebanon uh, on rubbles and garbage that happened after the 1990s with the Carantina dump that uh, made up today the waterfront city. Um, and what's happening today uh, since the 2015 crisis is the same idea on Jaladib, we are gaining on the seafront. Uh, land. So who would say uh, land would also talk about agriculture? 1% um, of uh, landowners in Lebanon own 25% of the agricultural surface lands in Lebanon, compared to 50% of the bottom poorest farmers owing, owning only 10%. So this, this is actually a very good imprint of the historical Zuhama that is rooted in Lebanese politics over uh, almost two centuries now. Um, 
So uh, not to talk about public, uh, public domain or public property that is even close to null in Lebanon, we barely have the 10 meter strip uh, shoreline, which is by the way at 95% illegally uh, squatted. Um, and uh, actually what also remains is the useless uh, train line, which is actually, I don't know if you know, but it is forecasted to become um, the pipeline that is uh, linking uh, 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 offshore to onshore gas um, exploration. So there will be a conduct, a pipeline running into this previous train line. Uh, and if we talk now a bit about, about water, we can, we can talk about the large dams that were actually proposed back since the mandate and uh, US.4 uh, policies in the Lebanon, in Lebanon actually. Until the recent SAD uh, conference that uh, actually uh, pledged for uh, 4 billion, which is almost uh, the one third of the donation was expected to turn into the water sector. So it is actually what, what I want to remind also is that it, the chapter goes a bit beyond, the tries to go beyond the corruption discourse, the local corruption discourse to remind that it's actually a more development complex that is behind uh, with international donors behind. It's not only about local actors. International donors are there usually to back up those politicians internally um, for different reasons. So uh, yeah, beside, beside having spent a lot on uh, reconstruction, whether it's in the water sector or sewage, until now we have 60 wastewater treatment plants that were actually built during the 15 last years in Lebanon. Out of 60, there, there are only two that are running and I'm, not, I'm still not sure that are, they are running today. Um, so uh, it was actually a complete uh, fiasco, whether from the donor perspective or donor side or the political side in Lebanon. Uh, there are uh, there is one spill, uh, like sea uh, uh, sewage spill on the sea every four kilometers in Lebanon on average, which is really uh, like scary. Not to talk about all the tide aid uh, that comes, uh, bringing like the donors' money with the expertise and businesses and engineering companies coming ahead on this tight aid relation um, that is worldwide uh, noticed also. And, um, and now the last chapters, uh, chapter is about the cartels, uh, about um, mainly the energy sector and transportation, relying a lot on um, gas and fuel. I was just compiling now the 2022 import data in Lebanon. And something striking is that Lebanon imported $19.5 billion um, in 2022. Six billion out of them is for uh, diesel mainly in order to run the private generators. So th those numbers are really like uh, really uh, extremely scary because we, we barely have 10 billion of reserves and we are consuming and importing for 20 billion, as if nothing is happening. So um, behind this, there's there is of course the car importers cartel, car import car car imports actually hiked last year for the first time since the crisis. Uh, you have you, we do have the fuel cartels. You have the generators mafia. All of those also um, like in this sector 
uh, cherry picking uh, profits. So, uh, and all of now the, the concentration going whether officially is to the gas exploration sector, but what to wait out of uh, like the outcomes um, differently, what, what, what we could expect like from any windfalls coming to those politicians. So uh, actually happily, luckily uh, nothing was discovered yet. So uh, we, I, I conclude something and maybe like just to link uh, to, to others uh, um, interventions, I really evoked at the end Polanyi's pendulum uh, at the end of this chapter, just like, uh, like evoking Polanyi's pendulum, the future challenge of the movement is to confront the status donors hegemony that has deployed the, its material coercive and discursive apparatus to adjust the pendulum to private capitalist, capital interests and in Lebanon, and a failure largely due to the co-optation of public uh, debate and the public sphere, uh, mainly by the politicians and also by co-opted civil society figures uh, in the country that some are running, are already deputies uh, that come out from this revolution. So there's a huge co-optation out there that uh, if you want to think about the future of any movement in Lebanon, I think uh, we should take really good consideration of those um, uh, points. Thank you. Thanks. And that's a great transition to uh, to Lama Karame, a doctoral candidate at Oxford, um, and uh, and who's written a chapter about the role of the public prosecutor and how the law struck back against uh, the protest movement. Lama, tell us a little bit about this. Yeah, um, first, thank you, Mark, for, for having us. Um, so my chapter looks at um, the role of and value of legal tactics in the uprising. Um, I argue that a law was both at the service um, of the uprising, um, at the service of control um, and resistance. Um, so on one hand, uh, legal discourse fueled um, the mobilization. It created a common narrative for a collective mobilization. Um, and we've seen how a legal analysis was actually employed to discredit um, the cosmetic reforms that were proposed by the government, especially um, in the first days um, of protests, including the blank amnesty law, but also the laws on banking secrecy, anti-corruption legislation, etc. Um, and I show that legal mobilization facilitated um, the deconstruction of the regime's rhetoric, um, but it also provided a space uh, to mainstream uh, legal expertise and to remove it um, from, from the grip of experts. I've been uh, working in NGOs in Lebanon for over 10 years, and I remember how difficult it is um, to attract public support to legal issues. Uh, so law is often treated as something very technical that is separated from the social, that is separated from um, politics. And you've seen how this um, has changed during the uprising. So for example, it was um, very usual to see tens of people gathered in Azariye Square under a tent uh, discussing um, a certain legal provision ranging from anti-corruption, judicial independence, but also uh, less popular issues, I would say, uh, women's rights, uh, personal status law, etc. Um, 
And the the uprising also provided uh, uh, um, a, the, the the uprising also provided a certain reliance on legal discourse um, to set the agenda for protesters. So we've seen how the draft bill, for example, on the independence of the judiciary, um, which was uh, presented to the parliament in 2018 um, and attracted very little attention then, um, quickly became on the top um, demands of um, of protesters. Um, and this appeal to law was also um, translated in an unprecedented mo mobilization of lawyers um, and uh, legal professionals, including judges. Uh, um, again, these professions are, are usually have been usually uh, self-restraining uh, from public issues in, in Lebanon, um, and suddenly with the um, with the uprising with the uprising, we've seen them leave their uh, ivory tower, leave their offices, and join protesters on the street. Uh, but we've also seen how uh, there was a proliferation of um, legal counseling groups. I've personally been added to more than 10 WhatsApp groups within a week, uh, defending all types of, of uh, uh, causes, starting from uh, protesters, but also juveniles, public spaces, women's rights. So there was this um, uh, appeal to law that there was this excitement by um, legal professionals. Um, and this also created uh, a certain uh, tension between legal professionals um, who have been traditionally uh, uh, um, associated with the regime or uh, aligned uh, with the regime um, and their uh, their own institutions. So uh, uh, we've seen how they've became uh, more vocal against the regime. But this same law and this same uh, uh, um, in this same context, law was also um, used and employed by the regime. Um, it it not only allowed the regime to uh, crack down on dissent through detention um, and mass arrests, but it also uh, provided a basis for the regime's narrative in creating. Um, a, 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 a certain binary in constructing a binary of uh, the good protester, the civilized and peaceful protester versus uh, the violent uh, insurgents, if I can say. Um, and this narrative was also adopted at some point by certain uh, political groups. So the regime used the law not only to crack and to crack on dissent and to penalize protesters, but also to construct um, a narrative that would transform um, the protests into a question of uh, law and order. Um, and the chapter also highlights how um, lawyers responded um, to the regime's attempt to deploy law. I look at the work of um, the Lawyers Committee for the Defense of Protesters, which is a um, volunteer pro bono lawyers committee that was established in 2015 with the um, Youth Think Movement and um, uh, also worked during the um, October uprising. And I analyze how their work, um, their lawyering strategies evolved with time. So uh, I argue that they started with a self-preservation strategy um, to later move to a more provocative and confrontation confrontational um, political lawyering style, where um, they brought um, politics to, to the courtroom, basically. And um, I look at how um, they've used uh, the courtroom as a stage or as a terrain to uh, 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 indict or to uh, have a political statement against the public prosecution, um, which is known to be affiliated with the regime. And I think this is uh, um, quite obvious, especially this week with what's happening um, in the Beirut blast investigation. Um, 
So the chapter ends by questioning the extent to which uh, legal mobilization served the broader goals of the uprising. Um, and I argue that um, legal advocacy was mostly conducive of su supporting liberal claims and liberal rights, such as the right to protest, um, judicial independence, um, anti-corruption legislation, um, uh, uh, but it felt um, short uh, uh, from uh, of mobilizing um, or arguing or uh, challenging uh, the core interests um, of the neoliberal regime. Uh, quite the contrary, we've seen how constitutional legal principles such as um, equality between citizens and um, the right to public uh, to private property were used uh, to counter the call for a fair uh, redistribution um, of losses. And we've also seen how the legal battles, for example, against banks um, culminated, um, whether uh, unwittingly or not, um, with uh, dispersed uh, legal actions um, that were fragmented and they aimed uh, to salvage what's remaining of personal uh, uh, bank deposits. So this goes back also to Rima's um, uh, argument and how uh, legal mobilization also fragmented uh, a political struggle, I would say. So to summarize, um, the chapter tells uh, the story of how mobilization uh, was nurtured with references to law, to legal symbols, how the state used the malleability of law to sustain itself, um, and how lawyers resisted um, uh, and employed law as a tool of resistance. Um, and it ends with a reflection on the limits of uh, legal mobilization, uh, especially uh, and its focus on um, liberal rights. Thanks. And why don't we uh, finally go back to Jeffrey Karam, one of the co-editors at Lebanese American University, uh, and to talk about uh, your chapters on the counter-revolution, both domestic and international. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. So this is a great segue from Lamont to be able to talk about how the state pushed back. Uh, my chapter actually goes beyond looking at the local dynamics, which another colleague has done in the book, Joseph uh, Dahid. To be able to complicate this international face and this new dimension of counter-revolutionary discourse and action. Uh, the most striking part of my chapter really has to do with the access to open source information, whether it's from Twitter, official statements by leaders in Iran, or whether it's from the embassy cables that were sent to the, the American population, US citizens in Lebanon, where both statements uh, converge on the idea of maintaining the status quo. So the title of my chapter really is the shadow gardens of the status quo is for me to unpack and be able to uncover a different layer of counter-revolution that really transpired during this moment in Lebanon, which was not based on violence, which was not based on vivid forms of repression, but really based on the duality of wavering between uh, public support for the demonstrations, while at the same time, actions that actually allowed the regime to stay intact. And just to provide a few examples, from the Iranian perspective, because I focus on the chapter on only two powers, Iran and the United States of America, uh, both converge on the idea of the fear of political vacuum that might emerge if the regime falls. And by looking through that lens, uh, from the Iranian perspective, there was a strong discourse on the possibilities of another civil conflict in Lebanon, very similar to what transpired and what's happening in Iraq and what's happening in Syria. And from the American side was really the focus on the hidden enemy that would come to replace this uh, regime of coexistence, this regime of a sectarian balance that ended the 15 
a year-long civil war. But the practice of it was really uh, when one digs deeper between the lines and tries to uh, really complicate these notions of counter-revolution, becomes very clear that both powers were really invested in maintaining uh, the order as is and keeping the status quo as, which is a very uh, typical argument that we see in IR scholarship that talks about how great powers envision the importance of maintaining uh, the status quo of things rather than any disruptions to the possible order that might unravel and be not so conducive to their interests. So digging deep into these open source uh, documents um, by looking at different perspectives, different speeches, different testimonies, whether from the former ambassador to Lebanon, Jeffrey Feldman, or from looking at different religious clerics in Iran, becomes very clear that the much of the focus was really on how to extend support uh, to the Lebanese government, in particular from the American side to the Lebanese armed forces, while at the same time providing lip service support and public support to revolutionaries in the street by talking about the sanctity of their demands, the seriousness of their grievances, and why the current state of dysfunction should come to an end. You compare that to the Iranian side, uh, the narrative is quite similar. It's a narrative of a Western-led uh, uh, instigated uprising uh, supported by intelligence organizations against the legitimacy of the state, the legitimacy of public institutions that actually are to blame for the current state of corruption, but also at the same time uh, should not be exploited by Western powers. And what was fascinating and striking was really to understand why for different motives, uh, both America and Iran actually in an unintentional and un unmotivated manner converge on the idea of maintaining this state of dysfunction, regardless of the fact whether they still were able to talk about the legitimacy of different demands, whether they're still able to talk about the sanctity of grievances in the street, it became very clear that both powers were really invested in making sure that disruptions that were happening would be contained, pushed back and repressed on. So at the height of the financial crisis, the United States of America was funneling in millions of dollars in support of the Lebanese armed forces, which was one of the main, main sources of counter-revolution in Lebanon that was actually used by the government to open up the roads that were being blocked, to ensure that revolutionaries can get to parliament. So the same organization that was actually repressing the masses was getting support from the same country that was actually praising the masses for taking the street. And that duality uh, was something not only to focus on, but also something to analyze, to be able to complicate uh, the other hidden sources of counter-revolution by bringing in the international dimensions. And from the Iranian perspective, uh, this also led to a very strong focus on Hezbollah being very instrumental in not only taking the street and supporting the government and repressing different revolutionary groups from being able to keep their tents or be able to maintain their ability to block roads, but also this rhetoric of the other. And that, when I talk about the other here, it's a narrative that's focused on uh, this Western-led conspiracy that is being supported, that is being instigated to be able to really bring down a regime that remains the last source that would actually allow for uh, the continuity of a, uh, of a regime and continuity of situation that would actually not lead to another round of war or another round of civil conflict. So the chapter really complicates these international boundaries of counter-revolution. 
goes beyond the notions of violence and oppression, but more importantly shows how two powers for different reasons mm -hmm. converged on the same idea of uh, really maintaining status quo with the fear of the unknown. And that unknown really translated into this imagined political vacuum that would emerge if this revolutionary uprising were to succeed and if members of the opposition, which unfortunately right now have entered parliament, a very small number of them, but at that point in time, the aspiration of what the opposition could bring really uh, was startling for both powers. So this is what chapter focuses on and draws on other comparisons to be able to think of why we should adopt a, a nuanced view of counter-revolution that also speaks to the larger context of the book, which is the fluidity of revolutionary uprisings that are not captured along binary lines, but actually require and invite critical and deeper reflection on everything that happens in between these odd outcomes. So that's what the chapter does and how that really brings us back into the first full circle with our other contributions and how we frame as co-editors uh, this volume and what it speaks to and what it's trying to engage with in terms of different disciplines and different scholarly contributions. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. And, and thanks to all of you. I mean, the eight of you have really helped to you know, bring out a lot of the diversity and the richness of, of the volume in all of the different layers and sectors that it discusses. And of course, there's there's so much more. There's uh, there's twenty more than twenty additional chapters. Uh, it covers everything from protest dynamics to the labor movement to the media, the emergence of alternative media, um, the particular moments of debate. The uh, there's so much that goes in to uh, the, to this volume on the Lebanese uprising of 2019. Uh, thank you all for producing it and for talking with us today. And I hope that uh, everyone will go and check it out and see everything. That the volume has to offer. Um, so thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Mm -hmm.